Welcome to another edition of the China in Africa podcast. I'm Eric Olander, and as always, I'm joined by Kobus van Staden of Witts University in Johannesburg, South Africa. A very good afternoon to you, Kobus. Good afternoon. Well, Kobus, today we're going to stay in your neighborhood in South Africa where there has been a lot going on in the past two to three weeks. And we're going to kind of smush together about five or six different stories about the Chinese in South Africa. And and there is no linkage necessarily between these stories. We just thought we just collected a whole bucket full of different stories. And I really want to get Kobus's take on the various, uh, the various issues and topics that have surfaced over the past few weeks. So... Let uh, Kobus, let me quickly run through the list, and then we're going to go one by one through these rather quickly, but I think they'll prove for some interesting discussion here. Uh, first and foremost, over the past uh, this past weekend, there was a, a rather violent attack on a Chinese tour bus returning from Sun City to Johannesburg. Uh, some uh, and it was 20 assailants attacked this, this tour bus full of Chinese. We'll talk about that. Ethics SA, normally a reputable organization. We've had them on the show before. They released some new findings from a what they call an African survey. Uh, they said that uh, the Chinese, well, aren't that popular in Africa. We'll get Kobus's take on that. Uh, in particularly in South Africa, which leads the race. Uh, President Zuma at the same time came out and said, nope, that's not necessarily the case. The, 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 the South African government treats all of its businesses as equals, particularly South, uh, Chinese businesses, and they really, really seem to like Chinese businesses, according to President Zuma. And finally, the unions, uh, they don't agree with President Zuma, and they are pushing back on Chinese businesses in particular. They do not necessarily want to have Chinese investments in platinum mines. Whew. That's a lot. So we wanted to kind of put that all together. Uh, first and foremost, let's go right off to this crash that happened. Uh, it wasn't really a crash, actually. It was more of an attack. Uh, 20 assailants uh, seem to have singled out this bus full of tourists. It is not clear if they knew that they were Chinese. Uh, it was clear that they were tourists returning from Sun City on the way to Johannesburg. Uh, they used guns, knives, rocks. Uh, must have been rather terrifying for, for the people on board. Do you get the sense that this is anti-Chinese, or is this just part of what life is like in South Africa today, where violent, random crime, particularly in vehicles, is just a part of life there? Um, actually, neither. Um, in the first place, um, well, what struck me about this, and I'd like to hear what you, you, what you think about this as well, is that it hasn't been really been picked up by other media. Like, we, we saw it on CCTV, um, and, you know, kind of... But like I haven't actually, you know, kind of made, it might just be that certain news cycles are, are slow, but um, you know, it, it hasn't created the, the kind of massive outcry that, that I expected. Well, um, I might, yeah, go ahead. No, it didn't create the outcry that I expected on Chinese media of all things. So I looked all throughout mm -hmm. the Chinese web, and typically, this is the kind of thing that sends Weibo into just a conniption, and it didn't. It didn't even make waves in China either. So I thought that was kind of interesting. Yeah, I mean, you, you know, cause, so it's very hard to really gauge what was going on here. Um, you know, kind of uh, the the reporting didn't mention whether these tourists were robbed or not. Um, the the significant thing for me was that they went past uh, a, a, a mining area, um, and mining has been incredibly fraught over the last while. Um, keep in mind that that South Africa has, is coming up to a, a very kind of hotly contested election in which is um, scheduled. 
for early May. Um, so we're right in the middle of, of, of very um, intense campaigning. So the um, the significant thing for me was that this happened very close to a gold mining community. Um, and in the, the run-up to this election, um, a lot of this conflict between unions and the government and, and big companies have been um, have been happening in gold and platinum mining communities. And the way that some of this has happened has been that that there are these protests protests that are being that are staged. Um, frequently, you know, protests in South Africa can be quite violent sometimes, or sometimes performatively violent. There, there's like a, you know, kind of there would be, for example, people would knock over all the trash cans that they can find, for example. So there there has to be some form of disruption that happens. Um, and you know, kind of, and the the reason that that happens is that's kind of the only way to get the attention. You know, kind of to to grab some form of the local of the the kind of national conversation is to kind of create chaos um and um so that it might have been that kind of situation that kind of got out of control as well. But um, do you, you think know, they were targeted because they were Chinese or because they were tourists just in the wrong place at the wrong time? It's very difficult for me to say. My, you know, kind of, if I had to guess, I would guess them being tourists would would count for okay. more because you know, kind of, like disrupting tourism sends a message to the to the central government. I don't know whether they would necessarily whether the people would have known that they were Chinese. Well, um, I, I, I'd be surprised if this was a kind of a xenophobic anti-Chinese attack. It would have but been. Who ve- knows? It would have been very difficult for them to tell on a rapidly moving bus that exactly. the the people inside were Chinese. Nonetheless. Uh, this is the kind of thing that keeps the central government awake at night because Chinese tourists are increasingly becoming a very important part of the Chinese of the South African tourism economy. The South African government is going to great lengths to attract Chinese tourists, and this is the kind of thing that just you know flares up on social media. But in this case, as you and I pointed out, it really didn't, uh, which was surprising to me because uh, it's it's perfectly made for. Uh, for social media fear mongering, but it didn't happen. Uh, let's move on to our next story, which is um, really about the negative perceptions of the Chinese in South Africa, but the Chinese in Africa. Ethics SA, who we've had on the show, you've interviewed them. Uh, they did a survey, 1,056 respondents. Uh, they said in 15 countries, but mostly from South Africa, Nigeria, and Kenya. Kobus, let me go through some of the results before we take a look at what the survey means. Uh, in part, they they basically come up and they say that the perceptions of the Chinese across Africa, according to the questionnaire, are negative. Uh, reputation, overall, 43.3% negative. Quality of products and services, 56% negative versus 23% positive. Environmental responsibility, 54% negative, only 11% positive. Uh, economic responsibility, 40% negative, 28% positive. Uh, social responsibility, uh, two to one here, 46% uh, negative, 21% positive, and employment practices, where there's that labor issue that seems to flare its uh, its ugly head every once in a while, 46% negative to 19% positive. So, Kobus, if you took that report card right there, you would think that the Chinese have terrible, terrible reputations across Africa. My only problem is not with the results, because that very well may in fact be the case, and I won't dispute that. I question the methodology that Ethics SA used to get to these results. What are your thoughts? 
Um, the, they ran a survey by, you know, kind of uploading a survey questionnaire um, on their website and then getting people to, you know, or, or canvassing people to, to come and fill in that questionnaire. So that immediately in an African context particular tends to isolate people within a certain economic class. Um, and I think it also probably pushes towards people who feel strongly about this issue. You know, kind of, so I would, I would not be surprised if it tends to bias the survey towards people who feel particularly negative about Chinese people because who else would take the, the, the trouble to go to a particular website and, you know, fill out a survey for half an hour? And I also, I guess, 1,056 respondents for an entire continent. Now, I know there is, uh, the way that surveys are done, there is some scientific methodology to it, so the numbers oftentimes aren't large if they are, in fact, a representative sample. Uh, but the premise that Africans negative about Chinese business impact, that is their headline. So they're basically characterizing an entire continent, over almost a billion people, 54 countries, based on the, as you said, a very self-selecting group of, of online uh, respondents, predominantly from three countries. Uh, and again, I just think that is, that is very, very problematic. It brought me back to our discussion from last year uh, of aid data, which was, of course, that uh, United States-based um, on – what was the best way? It was not a survey, but it was a research project that used as its, it's primary source – It was almost a database. Of, it was a database, yeah. that's right, that used as its primary source of information media reports. And you and I kind of highlighted the fact, along with a lot of – uh, of China-Africa scholars that this is a very unreliable way of coming up with research. My point that I'd like to ask you about is that this feeds right into a whole bunch of narratives that the Western media have, that Africans themselves have, and that just, you know, that the Chinese are the biggest assholes to come to Africa since I don't know what. And it's just yeah, almost on roads. Yeah, since it's a roads. And, and, and again, I'm not taking a side here. I'm just thinking this is not the way to characterize it. Yeah, you know, kind of it, it, it just points to the need to do a much bigger survey of this kind, you know. Um, but then that also immediately points to how difficult it is and how expensive it is to, that, to do that kind of survey. Um, you know, I, you know I, my, my feeling isn't necessarily to want to condemn the survey. I just think it's limited. Um, you know, I, I think it's probably valuable, but one has to keep its limitations in mind. Yes. So, uh, you know, let's break down a couple of the issues here on the overall quality of products and services, you know, very, very high levels of frustration in many African countries. And that is due in part to the predominance of counterfeit drugs that uh, pharmaceutical medicines that come into the continent, low cost cell phones, people complain about the quality of infrastructure. The, the flip side of this, though, and this is one of the discussions that I get into with people on our Facebook page at facebook.com slash China Africa Project, is that y you get what you pay for in some respects. Let's not forget that China produces Samsung phones, the Galaxy S4. They produce the iPhone. Uh, there is a lot of quality products, but you're paying $1,000 per phone. And, and, and it's not a controversial thing to say that the emerging markets tend to have crappier quality products in part because that's what the market will pay for. As the economies move up in the food chain, the quality of products come up. By definition, China does not produce only crappy products. Uh, it produces products that the market will pay for, whether they are American products for the Japanese market or for uh, such as, uh, you know, such as Apple, or they are Chinese products that are lower quality for emerging markets such as in South Asia, Latin America or Africa. So I think that the reputational issues sometimes get very complicated there. Yeah, I think also, you know, kind of I'd love to see data 
I'm comparing how many people have actually had a Chinese-made product break in their own experience and how many people heard stories about Chinese products breaking. You know, kind of, it seems to me that there is this kind of tidal wave of, of resentment to that that is frequently based on these perceptions that travel through the society rather than one-on-one particular kind of experiences. Um, you know, and, and I think it's, it's in similar kind of ways uh, ideas that Chinese companies are very bad bad to African laborers, I think, take on this kind of a life of their own in the same kind of way. Well, that goes back to, and we're going to talk about this in a future show on Zambia, but if you recall earlier, I think it was last year, a Human Rights Watch issued a report on labor, Chinese labor conditions in, in Zambia. And a number of academics, scholars who specialize in this in this area, came out and really shot down that research, highlighting the fact that the Chinese are really no better or no worse when it comes to the empirical research than other companies. However, there is a negative perception that they somehow treat workers worse than other foreign companies or even African companies, which the research does not support. So again, I think you're right. There's a perception problem here. And, and Cobus, this comes back to the, the, the fundamental question of whether or not this is due to the inability uh, or unwillingness of the Chinese to do effective PR. So are they not telling their story better or is it just because people don't like them? Yeah, I mean, you know, it's, that's such a difficult question. I think it's it's probably a, a combination of both. I think it also relates to just um, that China kind of, in, in certain ways, I think, becomes shorthand for, um, you know, for, for resentments about foreign companies generally, because China is now so prominent. Um, I think, you know, there, there's this overlap between a national... Um, national identity and racial identity um, and ethnic, you know, kind of linguistic identity that, you know, China is a more uniform population than, say, Canada or the U.S., you know, kind of so that, that, that it becomes this very easy kind of like shorthand sticker to stick on a foreign company that you, that you if, if you happen to resent foreign companies anyway. Then there's the other issue also of, you know, kind of, you know, so frequently um, these resentments are reported upon as, you know, and are not really interrogated. You know, um, so again, in in terms of um, in terms of the labor practices, so frequently you you hear in certain kind of African discourse that African workers uh, are forced to work such long hours by Chinese companies, and then you're like, okay, so is it really that the Chinese companies are working such long hours or that, that you know, kind of that shorter working days are, are, you know, kind of generally accepted in Africa and more accepted than they would be, for example, in the U.S.? I mean, the U.S., Europe, maybe not Europe, but, um, you know, kind of the U.S. and, and East Asia tends to have longer working days than African African businesses do. You know, in, in South Africa, frequently businesses close at four in the afternoon or for half past four or five. Um, you know, so whose fault is that then? Yeah. You know, kind of like, you know, why, why does the African standard in this case stand for this kind of objective standard that is then, you know, that, that any kind of deviation from that standard must then be criticized? You know, kind of the, the, the fact that these, that, that perceptions or attitudes are not, are not kind of interrogated more more aggressively is also is a problem of the reporting i think yes and and this of course uh, also does there's there's a bigger context for this i mean similar studies have been done and surveys in other parts of the world pew most recently did a global survey on on chinese perception and, and came up with similarly negative results particularly in the united states in europe 
certainly in Asia, where the Chinese are embroiled right now in a number of territorial disputes in the South and the East China Seas. So China's global standing is not very high. Uh, certainly in many parts of Africa, we've seen the American standing to be much higher than the Chinese. Uh, it's it's a, something I don't really fully understand in large part because the criticisms of the Chinese is that they are oftentimes behaving in a neo-colonial way, uh, oftentimes in an imperial way, when in fact you see the French and the Americans doing exactly that. Uh, having military bases and launching military conflicts and, and doing this so forth. So I'm not entirely clear. These are very complicated uh, perception issues that are tied in, as you said, Kobus, to a number of very, you know, I guess they are conflicting issues in terms of people perceive foreigners as threatening. Uh, people perceive the quality of products sometimes as being uh, a judgment on an entire people, which it may or may not. And also I think people confuse uh, China, Chinese with the state and private enterprises. So there's a mixing that's going on there. I just wanted to express my frustration with Ethics SA, who I have liked their work in the past, but I thought this was a pretty shoddy uh, piece of research in light of the methodology that they used. Uh, nonetheless, Jacob Zuma, your president, uh, Kobus, uh, he, he came out and, and again, not necessarily linking with the Ethics SA survey, but let me read you a couple quotes, and I want to understand the politics behind this, because I found this to be in something of a vacuum. Quote, the Chinese don't deal with us from, from that point of view, a colonial point of view. They deal with us as people that you must do business with at an equal level, so to speak. It's not the Chinese only. There are many other countries, but China has come here to do business, not to try to tell you what to do, what not to do, others do. So really taking a slap at the West kind of saying that the Chinese treat us as equals, uh, endorsing the Sino-South African relationship. What do you think the context was of that reaffirmation of the partnership with China? Um, I think it probably had a lot to do with uh, relationships. Um, you know, kind of the... I'm not sure why, what what the, the, the timing really was, why he particularly said it now. He said it in an interview. Um, so, you know, and he was, so he was probably asked about it, you know. Um, but, yeah, the, the, the timing of it was interesting. I mean, you know, the there are a succession of, of kind of BRICS events coming up this year. Um, and, um, you know, kind of so that, that might have might have played a role. What, <laughs> what I was wondering about is, like, to which extent, when was, when and by, by which kind of previous colonial ruler was South Africa so dictated by recently? You know, kind of like which British company or American company kind of forced South Africa into some kind of corner? You know, I don't know. It, it, that, that seemed to me to, to, to be such a cliche now that one actually has to really start doubting that to a certain extent. But, you know, let's put our media criticism goggles on here. And just as we've talked about how the Western media picks up this narrative of, you know, China, colonial, China, imperial, China, the, you know, the scramble, the new Chinese scramble for Africa. We hear them every day. Uh, the, the, the reverse of that is the Chinese media narrative, which is kind of to, you know, pick out, you know, every phrase of a sentence or that comes out that says, you know, you see, China's not like the imperial colonial powers of the past. You know, we're, and, and there's this hyper insecurity and sensitivity that the Chinese have. And they, they jump on every little type of, of, of quote or comment from a, an African leader like this. And so I feel like they're being in many ways just as distortive as the Western media is, which is doing the opposite. So it, it really is a battle for narratives here. 
Exactly. And I mean, and then you have someone like Jane Goodall kind of wading into this, you know, situation, kind uh, of, you know, saying that, you know, that China's Africa's nuclear, I mean, just couldn't new colonial overlords. I just, I was just slapping my forehead, you know, kind of, it's just, my, my feeling is that to a large extent, between South Africa and West Africa, um, because obviously, as, as we've mentioned, as we've been discussed in the past, France Afrique is a reality, and French intervention in you know in parts of Africa is real. Um, but in terms of South Africa, it's difficult for me to really even imagine, you know, kind of like what kind of reality is really being discussed here. Um, to which extent, you know, kind of is there really a, a dictating to South Africa by by foreign by by Western foreign companies. It all seems to me to fit into these stories we tell, each, uh, we tell ourselves and tell each other in order to kind of, you know, and, and these we have, as you say, competing narratives. But my feeling is we need to start breaking through the narratives and start actually, you know, becoming a bit more nuanced about these issues. You know, kind of, I mean, international capitalism is a hard, is a hard kind of playing field, you know. Um, maybe we should actually start discussing it in, in, in more real terms. Well, maybe it's a question of age and generation, too. Uh, that a lot of these narratives may be being put forth, and again, this may go back to the ethics, a sur- ethics essay surveys to what was the age group of the people who answered these questions, because in my experience, uh, I find that people over 40 uh, tend to fall back on these kind of traditional narratives of both the Chinese and Africans uh, much faster than younger people who have grown up in a post-colonial environment and who have oftentimes more nuanced views of this very complicated relationship. So I would be very interested to see the people who are writing this story, uh, the people who are rewriting the headlines, and the people who, who are generating this content and maybe leading these surveys. So that's something, that's just an X factor that I put out there that age oftentimes has something to do with it. Uh, There is no dispute, though, that South Africa now is one of, if not the most important country in Africa for the Chinese, uh, in part because the range of investments that are there. Uh, Unlike other countries that are largely natural resource dependent, we've spent a couple weeks now talking about South Sudan. The only thing South Sudan exports to China is oil. Angola, pretty much the same thing. Uh, Zambia, iron ore. There's very, very little diversification in many of these resource extractive countries. South Africa is not the case. South Africa has mining, but it also has manufacturing. It's got tourism. It's got autos. Such a rich uh, array of exports and imports from China. But Cobus, despite the growing economic dependence, reliance, interdependence that the South African economy has with China, Um, The unions, a very powerful force there, are not happy, and they're expressing themselves now over an investment by a Chinese conglomerate into a platinum mine. Tell us more about that. Yes, platinum. Um, You have to keep a few things in mind. In the first place... um, there's been successive waves of of, um, industrial action in the South African platinum industry over the last few years. The most kind of shocking and upsetting of of those was this kind of wildcat strike that happened in 2012, um, which led to a massive fight between police and and striking miners that ended up with a whole bunch of people dead. Um, 
so since then, the two biggest mining groups, platinum mining groups in South Africa, Lonman, which I think is a British company, and Anglo-American, which exists somewhere in the in the sky above the Atlantic Ocean. It used to be a South African company, but I think it's now listed in London. Um, and they have list, they've kind of reported that they've lost billions of dollars because of successive um, worker strikes. So I think it was something like $4.4 billion they've lost in, I think, the last year. Um, so now the South African platinum <laughs> industry looks so awful um, and it's, it looks so, so like such a risky investment that, that prices are actually very, very reasonable for companies. So um, that's the background. The, 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 the long march capital investment is, you know, kind of it might take place because the, 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 the prices are so low, you know, because it's such a bargain. Um, South Africa remains one of the, the world's largest producers of, of platinum. Um, and obviously, it's, it's a metal that, are, that is used increasingly in making ecologically friendly cars. So um, platinum isn't going anywhere. It's going to remain incredibly valuable. Um, but South African platinum workers are getting more and more restive. Um, and what you see is that it's not only that the unions are, are, you know, kind of are fighting the companies or that the unions are fighting the government. Keep in mind, you know, kind of since democratization, the unions and the government have been in an alliance. So you, the, the government essentially represents both workers and bosses, which is a, a problem. Um, now the unions are starting to break away from, from the government, which is a massive change in South African politics. But they're also fighting for, for you know, kind of control um, between themselves. So there's, uh, there's new unions emerging. And, you know, kind of so some, it's like suddenly there's this kind of unions that no one had heard of before popping up and so there's a fight for membership between all these different unions um you know kind of so them opposing chinese uh you know kind of they can oppose chinese investment for a bunch of reasons but one of it would probably be to send a message to the government in, you know kind of to in order in in this kind of fight for influence between the union members and the government although the main the, the ruling party in the government coalition before we get to the politics, and I do want to ask you about the politics a little bit more, um, it, my, I guess my question is, are they, you know, the unions coming against this deal for platinum because they are Chinese or because they are foreigners or really because it's just an opportunity to grab some headlines? And the reason I ask this is because you'll recall uh, last year, Noseweek uh, pointed out that the inconsistencies in South Africa's immigration uh, and the effects that uh, it, that that a, a lax immigration, according to Noseweek, has on the the textile industry. Beijing Automotive Works was trying to build taxis in South Africa. The unions opposed that. So there's been uh, union opposition to to different aspects of Chinese investment in South Africa, from textiles to automotives and now mining. Um, again, for me as an outsider, it's hard to tell if these are specifically anti-Chinese. Are they xenophobic or are they political? Yeah, for me as an insider, you know, to the extent that I am, it's also difficult to tell, actually. I mean, it could be all those things. It's, it's probably a combination of those things and a bunch of others. Um, in the case of mining, um, there's two other big elements. One is that there's fears that the mining, particularly the platinum industry, is already so disruptive and so fragile, um, and that the the fight for for dominance between different mine worker unions is already so intense that throwing another player or another investor in there is going to just create chaos. There's that. Also, there's a strong push within the unions and also with even within left the left wing of the ruling party for nationalisation. 
So, you know, kind of, so getting another foreign in, foreign investor in here, um, you know, kind of is opposed by these people because they actually want the government to take over all of these mines. Um, you know, kind of which, yeah, the government has recently said that they're not going to be doing that. Um, but there is continual continuous pressure, you know, kind of on them to, from, from the left to, 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 to try and do that. But, you know, kind of the, the fact that it's a Chinese mine, but, what, you know, kind of with whatever kind of perceptions of China there is, that could be one thing. Xenophobia is another thing. General resentment against foreign investment because of perceptions that they underpay is one more, um, you know, perceptions that there isn't enough beneficiation of, of, of minerals, that they just export raw minerals. That might be another one. It just keeps going. It, yeah. It's like it's this incredibly complicated situation. But you see the dependence between the two economies uh, on the JSC, on the Johannesburg Stock Exchange, that the RAND in so many ways is linked to the Chinese economy. Uh, you know, a Chinese economic report will determine the up or down of the value of the RAND on any given day. Uh, you see the Chinese investing in South African media in so many different sectors. And, and I'm wondering, and just, you know, a final question to you is, is there a general mis- negative or negative perception of the Chinese or does the media, and that's what we consume on the internet and from, from the outside, uh, basically focus on the negative while, for the most part, uh, the breadth and depth of Chinese investment is accepted by the majority of South Africans? I think in a lot of cases, South Africans don't even know which companies are necessarily Chinese. You know, um, I don't know that there's, you know, kind of this kind of, and you know, kind of people's antennas go up the moment they hear that the Chinese company is investing. I think the media tends to focus on on particular particular moments of of kind of conflict with China or struggle with China, and you know, kind of, it it also depends which media and to which kind of group they're talking. Obviously, the, the mining, the, the gold mining community, the, the, the gold, gold, you know, kind of uh, platinum and gold mine, miners themselves, are, you know, it's, it's a working class community with, who read particular newspapers. Um, and they are a different group from the people who, would, who for example, are upset about um, poaching of ivory, you know, kind of, which is another very, very hot button Chinese related issue. So it, 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 even in terms of the media and the, the kind of messaging that happens about China, it's incredibly complicated and it's almost chaotic frequently. While I think as a whole, there is an awareness in, in lots of sectors in South Africa that, that South African and Chinese economies are now really linked. Um, and I think that must be one of the reasons why President Zuma actually tried to, you know, <laughs> to send this kind of play, placating kind of message into the world. Well, South Africa really does represent in so many ways the trends that, that define the China-Africa relationship as a whole that really allow people to see exactly what they want in it, whether that's good or bad. Uh, but it has been an absolutely fascinating past two or three weeks. I invite everybody to kind of take a look at some of the stories that are out there. Just do a Google search on China, South Africa, and it will all come up. Uh, Kobus, thank you so much for uh, for all of your insights. As uh, as per usual, we just happen to kind of be in South Africa and uh, and have all these stories kind of line up one one after another. We went a little longer than normal, but we thought it was worth it today uh, to, to squeeze all of these together. Again, no linkage necessarily among the various stories, uh, but all of them fascinating in their own right. Uh, Kobus, uh, one, what can people do if they want to stay in touch with you and what you're reading and writing these days? 
Well, um, I am on our Facebook page regularly, um, and uh, that's facebook.com slash China Africa Project, and you'll see my name. I'm in the process of updating and like setting up my academia.edu page. So I know some people have been searching for me there, and I, I apologize to whoever's listening who didn't find anything there. Like new papers are coming out now, and I'm, I'm hope to have that up by the end of the week. Um, and I'm also on Twitter at Stadenesque, that's S-T-A-D-E-N-E-S-Q-U-E. And you can find me on Twitter as well at E-O-Lander, that's E-O-L-A-N-D-E-R, tweeting the top China and Africa headlines almost every day. Uh, but every day, alongside Cobus, uh, I'm on Facebook. We're now, uh, we're past 158,000 followers, uh, if you can believe that, Cobus. It's just, it's absolutely mind-blowing. Uh, we're so grateful to everybody who's participating and following the, the Facebook page. We'd love to have your, your voices heard on the page. So, do you agree? Disagree? We have a very, very open forum. Cobus and I are entirely nonpartisan. We really don't take a side. The point of all of this, what we're doing, is to foster conversation, discussion, exchange. Uh, so please do come and share your thoughts on the issues of the day over on Facebook.com. If you would like to follow this podcast, the best way to do it is, of course, on iTunes. Just look for us uh, by typing in China Africa Project, and we'll come up right there. Uh, but you can also listen to us on SoundCloud. Uh, we're on mobile devices on Android and on iOS. So just look in your uh, favorite app store for our app and you can listen to us on your mobile device. And of course, if you're in South Africa, you can pick us up on the BlackBerry network there. So we'll be back again soon with another edition of the China in Africa podcast. Thank you so much for listening.